0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, a trigger warning for this podcast, we're going to be talking about a gentleman who died by suicide. His younger brother is here to share that story. So we want you to know we're talking about suicide in this podcast. Um, My guest on today's podcast, I'll introduce him right now, and then we'll get to the story we're going to share, is my friend, Brian Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Brian.
1: Hey, thank you, Richard. Thanks for letting me be on.
0: Brian um, made, I post sometimes on Facebook about suicide, and Brian made a comment, and I then went to his Facebook page and realized that he has a story about a brother that died by suicide, and that's the story that Brian is going to share. Um, just a little bit about Brian. He's, um, I think, fifty-two.
1: Pretty close, not quite. Let's let's give it a few days. It's, right. it's December.
0: Let's um, call him fifty-one. <laughs> he's full decade younger than me, anyway. Uh. Um, he's in software sales Has a wonderful career doing that. He um, is a father of four. His wife Wendy. Tell us a bit about you, what your wife does and what you do. So my, so
1: first off, I I am a software development salesperson, and so we do customized sales if we want to do a mobile app internal software, whatever you want to do. I do want to explain something about my previous job because it has a role in this. Um, I used to work for a company called Heritage Festivals. And what we did was we did music festivals for high school choirs and bands. They would go to Disneyland, go to New York, perform in Carnegie Hall, and we would do the travel arrangements. And so I was a salesperson there. And so one of the kind of fun things that um, we would do is I would sell it, but then I would literally go operate the festival announce the trophies, run the whole event. I'd have like 2,000 students that I'd be responsible for in a certain city, but I did Seattle, New York, um, Anaheim. um, Most of the Utah schools traveled with us, so I I appreciate all those parents sending your kids on those choir and band trips. Um, But that's what I used to do, and I would take my daughter on one of those trips, and that will show up later. Um, So. It's great. Um. And then my, my wife is a, um, a cookbook author, so she's written 10 cookbooks. She's on KSL Studio 5. She's been cooking with Bryant Woolley, Good Things Utah, and we eat really good. Like So when we go to a restaurant, <laughs> and it's like maybe... In fact, recently we went to a restaurant, it was about $80 a plate, and it was literally a step down.
0: <laughs> they eat good at the pole home. They do.
1: It's not cheap on groceries, but it's good.
0: And... Um. Just a little more background on Brian's family. We're going to talk about his brother, Boyd Samuel Paul, who was born, who died by suicide. We'll talk about that in 1989 at the age of 25. So if he were alive, he'd be 59. Um, He um, served a mission, came out as gay, went to Washington, D.C., and then died by suicide by jumping off the bridge. And why would we do this kind of a podcast? I think I want to do this podcast because I think that this will help people that um, are suicidal to perhaps pull out of that and see hope in their future. I also want to do this podcast to better support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. I um, also want to do this podcast so that if you've lost somebody to suicide and are heartbroken and are wonder if your eternal family's forever changed, I think the things Brian will share with you from their family will help you to find hope. Even when you've lost someone to suicide, is that okay, Brian? Yeah, for that's
1: this is this is kind of a prodigal son story, or <laughs> um, and I played the part of prodigal brother really well. Um, <laughs> but it is a hope, and it is going to teach you a lot about the atonement and the power of the atonement.
0: And um, Brian is an active member of the church. I don't think I've meant that. So you mentioned that. So you've he um, you served as an Elder's quorum president and a bishopric. Served a mission in right after his brother died in Wellington, New Zealand from 1990 to 1992. So I'll just let you start um, where you want to start. Okay. We kind of invite listeners, the person who's died by suicide, to kind of be here with us. We hope this somehow honors them and they can hear their story and their name continue to be talked about and that they're not forgotten, and this podcast brings them to life. We'll also link in this podcast a YouTube video I believe your niece created. Uh-huh. Um, that you can see, and it's just a life of Boyd from all these pictures to put to music, deeply touching YouTube video that you sent me in preparation for this podcast. So we'll link to that in the show notes if you want to get a better feel for Boyd. But with that, Brian, I'm going to turn it over to you.
1: Okay. Well, my brother. So I'm. There was an age eight year gap, seven years, depending on how the birth dates roll out. And my brother was a very spiritual kid. I mean, he was. Probably a typical kid, but he was very religious, um, read the scriptures, loved, loved, had a really deep, profound love for God. One of the fun activities, he loved our family history, but we would go on Memorial Day, we would go up all the way to Cache Valley. We have a lot of ancestors up there in different graves, and we'd kind of clean up the grave, but we would tell stories um about our ancestors. My dad was a very family historian, and we my family had a lot of spiritual stories. I mean, they all came across the plains and they all had spiritual experiences. And so that's kind of what we raised. And he loved his family history. That was kind of his story to do that. So, um, but at that time I was kind of the young kid and I didn't really have a connection age wise. Cause of, we were eight years apart. So he, you know, I was doing little playing with toys. He was off doing something else. You know what I mean? And so he came home from his mission, went on his mission. He went to Cali, Columbia. Um, he was called for 18 months. And that was the, there was a window of time where that was the thing, 18 months. And then the church changed it to 24 months. The church changed it to 24 months. He extended another six months and came home on a two-year mission. And so when he first got home, he was kind of a little bit looser, like with, like he would say, damn or hell, which is really not a big deal. But um, I was like, well, that's a little different for a boy. But he, um, when he first came home, he went to BYU and he's a, he He's a 4.0 type student. And um, so he was getting, doing that. And he met this girl very first. And I, I don't know how long they dated, but I really liked her. Her name was Sherry. And um, she was really cool. Um, when he wasn't dating her, my brother and I used to go like driving up the, the mountains and the hills or just look at houses on the East Bench. And and we would just kind of talk and really connect. And it was really it was really cool because I was like meeting my brotherhood. He, I mean, my like I had a big brother finally, you know what I mean? I wasn't the Lurpy brother. I was 14, but I was still young. One of my best memories is he took me down to Provo. I don't really know why or what, but we were in his, one of his, I think it was her apartment complex, but they had a swimming pool. And um, there's all these college kids around and they're like, Hey, this is Brian's little brother. And we're swimming in the pool and in the apartment. And the kid, I just loved the college atmosphere. And, And, um, I really liked her and, and he was dating her for a while. Um, and, um, eventually another aspect was, was cool. He would come up to Provo with her, from her, with her. And, and, um, she would, um, like they had to go run errands. Like my mom would say, Hey, here's 20 bucks. Go get some milk. And I say, hey, can I go with you? And my brother's like, no, you just stay here. And she goes, no, bring him. And so I just really liked her because she always made me feel included. So I don't know how long they dated, but they dated eight months. Something kind of clicked with Boyd and he got really mad. Um, I don't know why they broke up, but I don't know if he was mad at himself. There was a couple of songs. We used to have tape cassettes on the car. So you had to rewind and you had to hit the right spot. It wasn't like CDs and iPhones. And so... But he'd play a, a certain song over, and one of them was Wham, one was a couple, but it was, he was like mad, and he was frustrated. Um, and then at the point, he just really, he was done with God. He, he was mad. And he literally, the garments flew off, I'm not a member of the church, I'm done. In fact, in the video, he, he later served in the military with the Air Force to kind of pay for it. And one of the things that always kind of triggers me is if you look at the dog tags, it says LDS, a religious preference, is none. Hmm. That is not like my brother, and so he had really, he felt like God had forsaken him, that something was going on. Now he kept me away from his feelings, like he didn't like I'm the fourteen year old kid. He didn't want to interfere with that. So a lot of his feelings, I was not a participant of. I could see it. I could see his frustration, but I I don't I can't tell context what he was feeling. Um, so he was really mad. He started to, um, just like, okay, God, you're not going to help me. I'm going to sin. So he went to alcohol. He went to whatever he wanted and he tried, he was promiscuous with women trying to do whatever, try to figure things out. And, um, and it was like, this is not our brother. I mean, like, so our family's kind of freaking out, like, cause this is, boy, was Peter Priesthood, and all of a sudden he's like, what's going on? and we didn't really understand what was going. He had some internal struggles. He was fighting something and God was not helping him. And so if you're not going to help me, I'm on. And okay, fine. I've done everything I know how. So he started doing that. And, um, and then my mom, my parents were freaking out. Um, like what's going on? Total change of character. And then finally he came out as gay I mean, he kissed the girls. He was, I didn't get it. So at the time, and my biggest problem was gay. So we have changed a lot in our society, but I was, gay was a curse. I mean, when I went to Murray high school, when I went from one period, you know, class to the next, I heard thir- gay 13 times at least. And it was like, Hey, get away, you homo. Hey, gay, you know, you know, like if we go to buy a shirt and it's like, you get the blue shirt or the red shirt, don't buy the red shirt. That's gay. You know what I mean? It was just like gay was like everywhere. And it was like the curse of gay. And, um, and so as a high school kid, I am guilty. All I want to do is be accepted. I had a great group of friends. I had three sets of friends. I had 30 friends that were like awesome friends. They were like peer pressure to do the right thing. Um, I had another kind of guy friends that were in my ward, like my priesthood group. You know what I mean? That we were really close and did a lot of stuff. And so it was really good. But Boyd started really changing his personality. Um, and so it was really hard on our family. It was just, and so, and we didn't understand him, that process of him leaving the church, being angry, And, it, and that was probably about three years, give or take. And it was just that whole cycle, just like, what's going on? Um, when he came out gay, I literally took on a lot of shame. I was embarrassed. I was, I was trying to accept that, like, there was nothing positive. I mean, we had, high school was ruthless on that. I don't know of anybody that came out gay in my high school, and, and I'm sure there were gay people, but they, nobody in their right mind would admit it. And we had, um, I remember, I think I was sick one time with Oprah, and this was, she used to run her shows like Donahue, where she's going up the aisles, you know what I mean? And they put two gay people in the audience, and the whole audience just ripped on them. Wow, I mean, just ripped on him, and so like I didn't hear anything good with that. Um, And then we had in church, there was nothing really good to share with that, and and there was just nothing. I had nothing to go off, and I didn't understand why you choose gay. I didn't get it. Like I was probably kind of like a five year old, where okay, mom's pregnant, but how'd that baby get in there and how'd that baby get out? I really didn't know, (laughs) and I didn't understand this process, and um, and it was hard for me because. My brother's personality changed a lot. And I felt I, I literally lost my brother. I mean, I was kind of like, I was having these good times with him. Like, I went skiing with him. I just, I, I literally felt like I lost my brother. And and that kind of thing. And I didn't want to tell my close friends. That was a secret. I'm sure everybody in the ward knew. I think my mom confided with someone and, and everyone said, Hey, don't tell anyone, but hey, don't tell anyone, but, you know. So I think everybody knew. But we, Everyone's top secret, and so we—I um, was just kind of going along, and I was really struggling um, with that. One thing I learned: my dad was really worried about my brother's salvation, and I've kind of learned that um, from that. Is that is not healthy? My dad was just really worried a lot. He'd read a lot of scriptures. He read Bruce armick you know, the Spencer W. Kimball, Boyd K. Packer, and none of it was helpful. And it just kind of made things worse in my family. And and so we were worried that the other thing that was really hard was AIDS came out at that point. Now, we've just went through this COVID crisis. There was a point where I couldn't see some of my family members because one of them had open heart surgery. And, you know, it's like, hey, I got to be away. So my siblings was really worried about Boyd's behavior. um, And they were worried. He was a great uncle. He loved my nephews and nieces and you'll see that on the video. So on the video you'll see, you'll see these little clips of letters that he wrote. Now this back in the day phone calls were long distance and provo was long distance. And that's you could crazy. I know, but you could rack up like I mean 50 bucks on a phone call. You remember that? I mean people back in the day on the BY devotionals talked about getting a loan on their car to pay for the phone bill for the girlfriend, you know, that's far away. Long distance was expensive. And International was out the roof. So he would write these letters to my parents and he would they would write back. And so those were clips of the letters that Jamie put in there. And one of them that hurts that when I see it is I know Jason, I know Jamie, you know, and he says, I don't know, Sean, he was cut off. And so that was kind of hurt. So he, my mom was put on the pressure, basically that who goes to these family activities. We have a tradition, July 4th, Labor Day, and my brother couldn't go. And so it stung.
0: And that was the AIDS.
1: It was AIDS. It was AIDS. Um, just and, the unknown and, and, about. And you, and, and, and you got to, ladies, what they told about COVID and how consistent they were, AIDS was off the roof.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it was like, it was breathing. It was saliva. It was this. It was that. It was all over the place. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was, I mean, I remember Tom, Tom off was on there and, and it was just all over the board. And it was scaring the crap out of everybody. And that's part of, on the Oprah show, where they were just ruthless to them, these two gay, because AIDS was out. And it was ruthless. In fact, it was so ruthless. At the school I went to, Murray High, I remember my friends, there was two football players. I don't know. I knew them, but I'm not friends with them. But they would go to the gay bars and, for fun, on the weekend, beat them up when they come out, and they looking for people that hold hands or whatever and beat the crap out of them. And the sad thing was my brother went to a gay bar up there. He'd go up to the gay bars up in Salt Lake. And one time, this was really rocked our family, but he came home. First off, he shouldn't be driving drunk. So that ticked off a lot of people in my family. The other thing is he threw up all this alcohol and, boo- and my mom had to clean it up. And we didn't really know what AIDS was all about and what, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so my siblings and me really turned on him on that one. Because this was like totally out of character for my brother. And the other thing that was hard was my brother could be beat up by those two high school kids in my, and I just kept my mouth shut. I didn't dare to tell my parents because they got enough on their plate. And we also had some other family crisis, like just economics, things were going on with my, with other siblings. And it was just, it was hell in my family, what we were going through. Cause it, it was seemed like every storm was coming right at us and it wasn't just Boyd, but it was other things. And so I just had this thing, and my dad was reading, you know, like hey, Boyd does this, he's he's like he denied God, he was mad at God, there is no God. And he he was gay, he was doing all this stuff, and I remember my dad reading all these scriptures, and basically there was no hope. And it was interesting. I was with my friend, and I said, I don't know what this is, but I have a feeling my brother's gonna commit suicide in, in two years or three years, whatever I said. And it was exactly when it happened. And, and I just had this feeling, goes, you know, my brother is probably going to go to the celestial kingdom. And I had this feeling from the spirit, no. And I go to the terrestrial kingdom, no. And I go to the celestial kingdom. And I just like, no way. And all of a sudden, I had this enveloped feeling come over me. goes, never forget the power of forgiveness. Never. It was impactful on me. It was powerful. It was like going, I go, how everything I read was like contrary to what I thought. And, but the thing is, though, so, I mean, you know, he committed suicide. I thought that I was taught in LDS church that you commit suicide, you pretty much committed murder and you're, you're gone, you're toast. And it was like, nope. And it was powerful to me. And so I just like, kind of, okay, so, but my dad was really worried about my brother. And so, and so my, my brother had some system where he would hide his records or send them to Timbuktu or he played the BYU game really well. And so he, then one of the ward clerks would come in, Hey, Joey, we got your boy's records here. And so my mom would send him where he's supposed to be. And then he'd send him somewhere. I know he played the game. I don't know what he did, but he was good. And, um, he didn't want to transfer because he didn't want to lose credits and stuff like that. But he, he went to BYU, Hawaii once just for fun and, and had a good time and stuff like that. And, And then he came back and he graduated and he went to, decided to take a job back in Washington, D.C. with Indian Fairs. And he, and the, the other thing I want to back up a little bit, I don't know, there's on his obituary. So he took on the name when he was gay at BYU, the name Sam. That was not something we're familiar with. We always called him Boyd. And so there was an obituary on this video with Sam, and he actually started. It said, and I don't know history or stuff, but he started the first organization for gay men in Provo, co-founder. And I don't know what that was or what it turned into or grandfathered, but that's what. It was one of his gay friends that wrote that. It was wrote it in the Washington D.C. kind of newspaper of some sort, and that's. So I have no history on that. So he goes in. um, He he goes to Washington, D.C., and he goes back there. Um, First off, it was kind of interesting, and I learned this later, um, well after his death, but from a bishopric council, a counselor in the bishopric, but they had a lot of gay members back in Washington, D.C., and so they were just like, they don't go to church. We want to clean up these records. Let's kind of bring them in. Let's have them sign this letter. Their membership record goes away, and we can kind of clean it up. So he remembers meeting my brother, and he came in kind of I think he, I think he wanted his records off the church, but because the church was asking him, it was kind of a slap in rejection. I don't know. I just guess, I don't know. You'd have to ask him, but he kind of had a defeated, all right, whatever. And he signed it. And it was about January at this time. So a lot happened to my family. So this, my grandfather was, died on January 3rd. He was a stake patriarch. He had, he was, he, he had, um, he was a po- powerful priesthood leader and he gave out over 2000 blessings as a state patriarch because he was in the winter stake and he was riding the wave of the baby boom. Um, some of those primaries had 500 kids. So that's not like that today, but um, so he was a very powerful spiritual leader um, and he was in the hospital. He had colon cancer and he, had part of his large intestine removed, but it wasn't enough. And so they were coming to take more and give him a colostomy bag. And he didn't want that. He was pretty healthy at the time. To- I mean, like I visited him, he was joking, laughing. But in the hospital, his wife appeared to him. His wife had died in 1977. That's my grandma. And told him that he didn't know how to love. Up in the, uh, he said up in the spirit world where, he, where she was at, they know how to love. Love is the most Powerful, like everything is governed by love. And he told him, You need to learn how to love, and it rocked him. He also, she also told him, He goes, He's going now. This is time. And so he told, He gave a priest, like all my two of my cousins or three of my cousins, and all my my dad and my uncle came to give him a priest. And he goes, Well, hey, Mama says I'm going tomorrow. That's what. Um, and so, and um, my dad asked him, He goes, Grandpa, I, or to his dad, I goes, I need help with Boyd. Can you pull some strings? Now, my grandfather is different than he knew how to love. And I want to just share a little bit of story about my grandpa. But he had a son that was 17 years old. He was in the Civil Air Patrol. He wanted to be in the Air Force. And I, we believe he got hepatitis from an unsterilized needle. And now we have disposable needles, but those of you had to sterilize back in the 50s. And he got hepatitis and his son fell into a coma. He was completely yellow, um, could not respond. The blood index things that they measured were off the charts. His kidneys were shutting down and he went to these doctors. You got to save him. He's not going. And he goes, and the, there's four doctors. Chief of goes, the goes, you need to prepare for a funeral. There is nothing we can do. Nothing. And there's nothing in anywhere in this country Medically, we can do for him. He is dying, and you need to prepare for that. And my grandpa said, no way. And so he went and fasted for three days. And he had, um, uh, he felt a council up in heaven deciding and evaluated his whole life if he was worthy of this blessing. And immediately, an angel, he didn't see him, but one of the members of that council in the pre-exist- or the spirit world, came down and says, bless the boy. And as you speak, so shall it be. And he blessed him and he was healed. But my grandpa really knew, knew how to love. One of the things that he did was there was a lady, she had a family and they had brain cancer. And, and this is in the 1940s or 50s. And the doctors were scared to operate on them. And she was scared to be operating with the brain because you never know if you're going to get lose your eyesight, your hearing, what will happen. So he prayed for his, her health to be restored. And immediately he had a vision of this brain tumor. And he knew that those doctors could take it out with one scoop. It had not metastasized. He didn't know that medical term. And so he went and told her and he promised her in the name of the Lord that you will not have any symptoms or issues that they can take this brain tumor. But she couldn't convince her doctors. So he said, I'll tell your doctors. And so he talked to the doctors and they took confidence in him and they did it. And it was a he pointed where it was, the size, <laughs> and they did it. And it was like that. My, um, and he, was, he was just that way. One of them was, he was three things that were impossible to him. One of them was in the Korean War, and he would do this for other people in the war, but he, this one person was supposed to be a medic on the front line. And he did not like that because he knew the enemy would just kind of wait for the medic to come by and get two for one. And so he took three things that were, that were really impossible to him, and he went to the Lord on it. And he had a kind of a miraculous experience I won't go into, but because it was off the charts. Um, all three things were granted. And to that person that was supposed to be a medic on the front line, they, he was in Korea. 200 soldiers came, were lined up, all going to be medics um, on the front line. This guy that came in, was a captain or whatever, he says, randomly picks two people out of the front line. Him and his friend, and he says, well, you won't be able to be on the front line. You're going 30 miles south for the remainder of the war to an evac hospital, and you're going to be a med tech. And that's, that's how my grandpa rolled. One of them was when he had a funeral, like when he died January 3rd, 19 a month before my brother died. I had the worst um, ammonia flu. Like, I, I wasn't able to go to the funeral. I, every time I breathed, you could just hear the mucus. I couldn't speak. It was the worst one I've ever had before and since. And so I wasn't going to go to the funeral. And so my parents said, okay, we're going to see it. And so about 20 minutes after they got to the funeral home and about the time that they would say, hey, you know, where's Brian? And go, oh, he's sick. You know, I immediately felt hands laid on my head. Within 10 minutes, within minutes, the mucus was clearing on my throat. My energy was coming back. And ten minutes, I had my throat, I could speak, and all that stuff, and it's just said, "You are healed Now, go to the funeral." And so i I was able to drive in high school. So here's where the bad part comes. So the jerky brother, um, my brother called to find out a little bit about my grandpa. He was very close to my grandpa. He worked on the um, my grandpa owned a construction company. He helped build the original bullfrog. Um he said he lost more tools in that lake than he could shake a stick out. But he, um, he loved Boyd, and he would help him. And they had a spiritual connection. Boyd loved the gospel. My grandpa loved the gospel, and they'd have a lot of conversations. And so he called about him and wanted to know about him. And I was just jerky. I don't even know what I said, but I was mean to him. And that was my final words to him. You're mean to your grandfather or to Boyd? To Boyd. I, he called about my grandfather's death. Got it. Sorry, I probably said that wrong, but he called about my grandfather's death, and I was just really mean to him. And so that was it. Um, we then kind of on a little bit. So let me kind of date this. I actually pulled a calendar from 1989, but so Boyd wrote, a f- um, he, he was having a hard time. So he wrote this note on February 8th. It says, all my assets belong to Howard Davis, Paul, my father. I sober mine, I so will Boyd S. Paul. Oh. Uh-huh. So he wrote that. That was on February 8th. February 8th is a Wednesday. Um, And then somewhere on the 9th, he lived in Washington, he went to a bridge called the Howard Taft Bridge, and I've been there. And somewhere around midnight, he jumped off the bridge. Um, According to the autopsy, he had impact to his head and torso. And, um, we didn't know that, but it was really interesting on the 10th. So he was dead. They found his body on the 10th. I went to school. My body, like my mind was just out of it. Like, I don't know, like, yeah, you wake up with a mood and I had no idea. And I was just kind of sullen. I couldn't concentrate, couldn't focus. I was just out of sorts, but I didn't know why. On Saturday, February 11th, you know how teenagers like to sleep in and I was no different. But about 8 o'clock in the morning, I woke up to my mother howling, just screaming, howling, something from the bottom of her soul that I had never heard before and never want to hear again. And I I, I knew something bad had happened, so I kind of woke up, went down the stairs. I heard several times, Sam, Sam, and I was like, and I came down, my dad was in a panic, and I literally didn't know, who's Sam? Because that's not what we called them by. And it was something that was foreign to me. And, um, and my dad said, shh, boy just jumped off a bridge. He came in, so I just shh. And I had to listen to a half a conversation. So the conversation was came from Frank. Frank was a, a BYU student that was gay. They were not lovers. They were friends. Um, they weren't compatible, whatever that. And so he knew that my my um, brother had jumped off the bridge and was found on the 10th however he wanted to comfort my parents but allowed the washington dc police to call us he had given the phone number and address and everything to the washington of my parents but the washington dc police did not decided not to call us and so from a perfect stranger we heard that my brother died We heard a name, Sam, that we never really heard before. I mean, obviously it's in his middle name, but not what we call him. And it was hard. We called, my dad called the Washington DC several times and it was always, you have to talk to officer Lawrence or whoever. And they would not, we, we tried to go up the police channel, not that he was pretty high up to a certain degree, but we couldn't go higher up. We couldn't get any answers and it was killing my parents. That scream just really created PTSD. So I had to get out of the house. There was just a depressive spirit. I just I couldn't handle. I don't do well with my parents in pain, especially my mom. I had to get out. So I ran to my friends, and I didn't. I was depressed myself, I guess, and I, and they didn't know how to respond to me. Honestly, they had no idea how to respond to me. And I remember we went to uh, there's probably about 15 of us. We went to a party. they were playing games, and I was not in the mood to play games. So I just kind of sat on a couch. I was kind of soul. And at the same time, I didn't want to go home, Richard. I couldn't handle that pain. Uh, it rocked me. And so they eventually found out that my brother was gay and he committed suicide, my friends. And that was all a shocker. And they didn't know how to process any of that. And um, I still didn't know how to process that. And so I remember one friend kind of comforted me. She came away from the game and kind of comforted me. But I was kind of just left to myself. But I didn't want to be home. I came home. I don't think they really, the Washington police would never respond to them. And so I think it was Sunday morning and my mom or dad had an idea to call Murray police. So we called Murray police, Murray police figured out everything. They knew what was going on, everything about Boyd. And they did have Boyd's body and, and they were at the mortuary. We do Jenkins and Soph, like Soph's are close friends of our family. My mom's very close to them still to this day. Jaron passed away, but they're both widows right now. And they are very close. And so between Jenkins, so my, they got Boyd's body here and my mom had to see the body. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, when you don't want it to believe it's real. And, and because we really didn't, you know, mouth or two or three witness that we, we just had one friend that we didn't even know, my brother. And there was a couple of scars and birthmarks. And so she had to see them. To know who she's burying and so jenkins and so prepared the body to somewhat to see him and um and that was really hard that was hard on my family and so then we we buried my brother and that was just devastating my cousin who is a bishop will use this on gay when whenever a family has gay members he goes he saw my dad he goes i just want my son back And so when someone's hard on gay members, he will just say, I don't know what to do, but you love them. And you don't want to say, I want my son back. And so he uses that a lot. Um, So this was really hard. So my parents after this, they really wanted to know what was going on. And so our only really contact was Frank. We... My dad actually turned into an investigator to see, you know, did he have AIDS? They, they pulled medical records of my, my brother. He did not have AIDS. He didn't have STDs. He, he pulled, they did figure out a lot of things. Um, but one thing I just want to read, this is something I, before this podcast, I, I didn't know this note existed. And I thought, you know, partly because I was a jerk to my brother. I, I didn't know if I had some impact of him committing suicide. Honestly, honest. I'm just going to tell you, I don't think I was all of it, but I was some of it and I didn't want to be a part of it. And so, um, so I went into this, my mom has this book and some pictures. And so I just want to read, this is something my mom wrote, um, back in 1989. It says Frank Weatherfield called on Saturday morning, February 11th, 1989, Asked as he has heard from the Washington DC police. And the answer is no informed us that the son Boyd was found dead on rock Creek in Washington DC. And that's right below the bridge. I conversed several times with Frank and his mother who lived in Virginia about Boyd. One such conversation with Frank, I asked him and asked him if he knew why. Frank told, told Boyd, told me Boyd, and he's Sam, as he called him was considerate, intelligent, sensitive, clean-cut, but that he was frustrated about the major rejections in making relationships. He said family was not a factor. He felt badly about family reactions to his choices and his lifestyle. Frank said Boyd read most of his letters from home um, to him, Frank boyd was proud of his parents he dis- he was discouraged about his job situation he also said that boyd had a hard time and couldn't handle rejection he felt boyd was very vulnerable inside and he felt he was trying to reject his family but felt badly but very badly needed their acceptance he was throwing away most of his ties to his former life such as his genealogy records and he loved his family history at one time and Frank further said that the stacks of letters, his wallet was gone. And he didn't know if perhaps his wallet was disappeared from the body. He also was told that there was no clothes in his apartment. So obviously he gave his clothes away, different things, because it was pretty empty on this. Um, on this. And so it was kind of hard. He also wrote two suicide notes. Um, I just One was to Frank and one was to my mom and dad. And they were really short. And he said to Frank, I love you. I thought about you and my parents the whole time. Please comfort my parents. I love them. Wow. And then to my dad and mom, he says, I love you very much, Boyd. Wow. Um, my mom. My my mom. Boyd always loved my mom. My mom is over the top crazy, good.
0: Um but and my, she's alive. She's how- alive.
1: She's 88 years old. Okay.
0: And her name's Judy. Jody. Jody. J O D Y. Okay. And
1: she literally walked on water in his eyes. He would, when he was growing up, he would do all the, I mean, anything she asked, she would do. He would do it. Like, you know, mold, I mean, whatever it was, clean up the yard, do this. She was, my mom's very meticulous about her yard. And Boyd would do that. He used to work at the Murray Cemetery and take care of that. And he's buried there, actually. He worked at Orange Juice, but he, my mom walked on water. Always has, even through this whole crisis, always will have. And same with me. So after the funeral, my dad was just really distraught. Um, going back to his membership records, so his records, even though he asked to have him resign, they didn't take him off the records. Um, some stake president just felt a really bad feeling about it, and her my mom's friend knew him, and so he just tabled it. and it allowed he wasn't worthy to be buried in his temple clothes, but it meant everything to my dad. It was a tender mercy. it if my his son's rec, records were in the church, it would have just drove him mad, maddening. And so that was a tender mercy from heaven. Um, and also the state president put a kibosh to um cleaning out the records
0: good
1: that was that because of my brother that was done in washington dc and that stopped and went to a complete halt um so the next um one of the things with my grandpa he like my my dad asked him before he left before he died um in fact going back a little bit my grandpa was pretty fine he was willed off right with for the surgery He went and gave the okay sign to my dad and says, I'm not coming back. See ya. And he um, went on the surgery and that doctor came out madder than heck. He goes, there was no medical reason why your dad, I mean, he was just mad because he lost a patient and there was no medical reason why he should go. But um, my dad had asked him to take care of Boyd and Boyd was priority number one, he said. So my dad had it in my family and this might seem weird, but we have spiritual experiences. My, all my ancestors have them. My dad had dreams and visions. I, I have experiences. It's just kind of normal for my family. So um, he had a dream where Boyd, three weeks, was kind of running away. I, 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 he, you know like when you die, you go to the light? I don't know what it was, but Boyd was not going to the light. And there was two voices pleading for him, and he could hear these voices. Saint Boyd, and they were reaching out to him, and it was earnest, and it was it was it was, and Boyd was running away, and then he didn't know who those two voices were, but all of a sudden Boyd turned and went with them, and then he recognized the voice; it was my grandfather, and then the other was my great grandfather on my mom's side, Grandpa Campbell, great Grandpa Campbell, and he knew Boyd knew both of those personally in this life. And they took him. And so that brought a lot of comfort to my dad because my grandfather as a priesthood leader doesn't delegate. When something's on the line, he is tenacious in the most righteous way. And he will literally, you can't say no to him. Um, He's kind of like, and I kind of miss it, but he's the old time priesthood leader where they could... Really draw upon the powers of heaven. So my dad was kind of struggling a little bit. He's still worried about Boyd. Is he going to be okay? His salvation, all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of remembered that spiritual experience where he's fine, and I really believe that, Richard. I remember people in church. Um, one of the people in church said that, um, "Hey, you know, if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven. You know, celestial kingdom. You're going to the T. I was like, "Well, that's not true," because I knew that from the spirit, and. Um, so he's worried. So on my mission, I went on my mission to New Zealand. I loved it. Um, went with the Polynesian culture, got to be immersed in the culture. But I was in a city called Levin, and I was just kind of thinking about something, and immediately I felt my grandfather and my brother in the room. And I could hear them talking about me, but I didn't know what they were talking about. I kind of like felt like I was a fish in a fishbowl, honestly. <laughs> but I could feel his presence. And he was, he had come out of something struggling. I mean, something hard. I don't know what that was. He was a little weak, but grandpa was right there by his side mentoring him. And so I could feel his presence there. And um, that was a very powerful experience for me. Okay, so my next experience, back with my job, I used to run those music festivals, the high school choirs and bands. And so I would take my daughter, she was getting to be 12 years old. We used to hire high school kids to be runners. We'd rent performing arts centers, sometimes high school auditoriums, and we would run these events. And so these choirs would perform, warm up, perform, come on stage. We'd bring judges out there from university levels, and they would give them critiques and onstage clinics. And then we would do an awards ceremony fun, like an amusement park. And so I had brought my daughter to Washington, D.C. She was 12 years old, and I was very organized in how I ran the festivals. I had a certain amount of downtime. And I took her to all the sites in Washington, D.C. We, we extended the trip a little bit. I took her to Mount Vernon and all the stuff. But I wanted to take her to the bridge. And so my Google can get you there. So I was taking me there, but it couldn't find me a parking spot. And I could literally not find a parking spot anywhere. There's a lot of apartments on there. And I went over the bridge and uh, across the bridge, and I, I couldn't find anything. And so I literally, I was almost going to give up, but I felt like I had to do this. And I parked like, you know, from a hundred yards, you'd say, what idiot parked there? That was me. <laughs> so I had to park. And so I, we were, there's a little street closest to the city. that's kind of narrow. And we took a diagonal approach. And I said, Allison, we got to do this quick where I got to get back. As soon as I took a foot on that bridge, I was literally hit like a freight train with love. I mean, it was, I was permeated with my brother's presence. Wow. I mean, it was uh, like, a, I mean, it was, and immediately it was so impactful that uh, I literally had a heart. It took my breath away. I was just like, whoa, my body was released. You, you release tears because it's just a relief. my, I was 10 feet away from the sidewalk and I literally had to wipe my tears so I could and tiptoe up on the steps. Stairs, or not the stairs, but the curb to get on the the walkway of the bridge. Um, my spirit literally took over from it knew his presence and it came back with a love of its own. You know, we talk about burning of the bosom, but of the heart, it's somehow in this area by the heart is a conduit through the body and the spirit. We feel our emotions there. I didn't feel a burning in the bosom. It was a forest fire. My between my premortal love for him, the spirit or whatever, and his love for me—he literally permeated every. I could feel every aspect of his personality, his character, what he thought, and all that stuff. And it was just like, whoa! My daughter thought I was in trouble medically, and she's like, "Dad, are you okay? Are you okay?" And I, I literally couldn't talk, and all I could do is like, you know, when you're on the phone and hold up your hand, just like, hold, hold. And um, and when my when my brother um, hurt, I guess with my daughter kind of crying or, or um, worried about me, he tapered it down a little bit. And so I could kind of breathe a little bit, catch my breath. And I felt his whole presence and I could ask him questions and I could feel his responses. The nature of the spirit is where you feel feelings. And so the one of the first questions is, I asked him, I go, boy, what, what, what did what did I say to you? Did that have any effect on you committing suicide? And he goes, and I had the impact. No. And then, and I just felt, I just, and I asked him, I go, will you please forgive me? And immediately I felt this powerful forgiveness, like just totally forgiven. But this love that he gave me was different than any other love. It wasn't the general love. It was the most masculine love that I have felt. Now, this is kind of different because I had never felt this love. And my spirit knew about all about it, but I didn't. (laughs) But it's only a love that you can give between men. And I don't, like, I never felt this, Richard. It wasn't godly. I mean, there was a godly love foundation to it, but it was a brother-to-brother love. And because we all like to have a big brother, and, and literally he kind of, like, when he went gay, I was... Really get my some of my brotherhood needs met through him. And then I built walls. We kind of build walls because we get hurt a lot. And he literally knew intimately these, what I was missing. And he hit me with, and I could, he knocked those walls down in a half a second. And I could feel this kind of tingling in my heart where those needs were met in such a powerful way that I'd, I was like, wow, I don't know what's going on. But this love was unique. It was so powerful and it was just, and it was brother to brother kind of love. It was, it was, it literally created a oneness of brotherhood and a oneness of gender that I don't even understand how to describe because I had never felt that love. I've had many, many spiritual experiences. I have felt the love of my Heavenly Father where it took my breath away, but His love was different. His love was more of a fatherly love. It was a powerful love. It was, a, it was all the attributes in one governed by the most powerful wisdom that I have ever, never felt like that. But this was a love channel that I've never had. And one of the things in the English language that I really hate is we lump all loves under one word, love. And there's different loves. You know, The love that I have for my son is different than my love for my daughter. They're just kind of different. The love that I have for my wife is certainly not different than my neighbor. Um, it's different. We have friendship, love. We're missing a a love channel here because I had never felt that. And I'm pretty sure nobody else has because it was off the charts. But yeah, so I started asking him questions. I, I, I knew the spirit was there. I asked him if he was happy. And he was, I felt this incredible joy that he was happy. And there was one twinge of pain that I could sense and he wants to talk to my mother. He wants to connect with my mother in a way. And, he, and the other thing I could sense in him is he is intimate and knows every detail of my life and my, my siblings' lives. We don't know his life. but he, I could sense he knew exactly what we do and was very aware of it. The other thing that I noticed difference is um, his character was a lot different. He had more of a godly character than I've ever had the privilege of shaking a man, man's hand on this earth with. Um, he, he's good with God right now, I can tell you that, because it was very powerful. He might have not been worthy to be buried in his temple clothes, but he is dang worthy to marry, be resurrected. And he had a very powerful spiritual presence.
0: It's a really powerful thought.
1: Yeah. Um, I just and it was it was great. It was just something that really rocked me. It was it taught me a lot. Um, and so it was powerful. We don't know how to love Richard down here. We we're all our Lund languages are pretty darn blunt down here.
0: It's one of the very best segments we've done on this podcast what you shared with in that bridge and your vocabulary to describe that love and for listeners that have lost somebody to suicide or any other way, I think it gives us hope in this plan of salvation. In this 40,000-foot this level, the plan of salvation, it's really hard to see right now at 10 feet in mortality. But your brother and you went to a different place on that bridge that day. And the experiences you shared help us give hope. It's a great segment to give hope to people that have lost somebody, especially someone that's lost someone to suicide or someone that's lost somebody that's no longer participating in the church. And just feel peace. I think I've seen that picture. I think when you, when I think there's a picture. A picture of what? Of you and your your daughter on that bridge. Uh, we didn't have time to take a picture. Oh, then no, I'm placing that we, picture. We,
1: there's pictures of the bridge on that. Okay. Um, that was someone else that took it.
0: Um, talk about your mother, Jodi, and her conference talk. I want to make sure we get to that. Yeah, so
1: one, one of the time. Wherever you want to go. It's no, your, we, can, we can go with that. So one of the experiences that my mom had was, so my mom used to, so she would, Boyd would be open. This is, we're going back to when he was alive. So let's go back to that. And he was like, Boyd didn't tell me his feelings and his problems because he was protecting me. But he, um, would, we have a swing and a lot of family memories are on this swing. It's a wooden swing. It's a bench swing. It's out in the backyard and it's summertime. And my mom would sit there and talk to Boyd a couple of times until about 5am and trying to sort this out. And he had prayed to God. He was trying to wrestle with these feelings. These are, it was, even though I was praying, you've heard the podcast before, it's really in line. He was feeling typical of what are, we, you know, all the other gay people that you've talked to. And he um, was struggling with it and he was mad at God. And my mom was working with him and stuff. And so one time she, while he was alive, was just mad at God. She, like, look, and she, she remembers the promises of the prophets and, and, and the prayers, and, and she just kind of let, let God have it. She's like, you are not answering his prayers. We have done everything. We've had family meeting. We have t- read, taught our kids the gospel, and you are not answering his prayers. And I'm mad at you, God. And she laid this out on state conference talk. That she, uh, so let me back up a little bit. A counselor had asked her to give a talk in state conference. And so she shared this
0: experience. This is about 10 years after your brother died? Yeah, about 10
1: years, 1997. Okay, so
0: eight to 10 years. Okay. Yeah, so
1: sorry, I'm kind of jumping around. You're so doing sorry. Fine, so. Okay, so sorry. So she gave this um, talk, and she basically, in this congregation, she was the second speaker, and she told God how mad she was at him. You're not answering these prayers. And God. Came back with an answer to my mother and says, he has his agency, I have him, and he is not lost. And it really helped him. And so she gave this talk, because a lot of people in this church kind of believe in the limited atonement, where, you know, my brother, he committed suicide, he went gay, there's really no hope, you know what I mean? And she gave this talk, and it was so powerful on the atonement that it really kind of rocked the audience, I mean, the, the, the congregation. So a couple of the state presidency members felt like they should have closed the meeting. I think all three did. The meeting went flat after that. The spirit was so strong in the room and it went flat after that. I kind of wondered why, but I kind of understand a little bit. So after that talk or that talk, I used to call them the three-hour chats. I was living at home. I was in high school, but there was people would call and go, Hey, Jody, I know you don't know me, but I'm in the stake and I heard your talk and my, bro- my son is, or my daughter is, and she would get that. And then she would also get talks that, Hey, Jody, I know you don't know me, but some, my sister's in your stake and my son is, you know, gay. And they would be the three hour chats helping them. And my mom's message is very clear is you love them. You accept them. And you just turn it to the Lord and let him deal with it and, and be happy. One of the closing letters of my brother, um, it says, I will never forget you. I always love you and have hope in you. Someday you'll accept me. And I'm, I just want you to know that I really love my brother. He's been a trooper. Um, I've also I'm um, just grateful for him.
0: So you know, moving podcast listeners, and there'll be things that you pick up that'll be really helpful for you. Um, I wrote down word for word what your mom said in that state conference talk. Um, I have him; he is not lost, and I love you, Brian. Talking about sometimes we think of the limited atonement, and I think she taught the full atonement there. It doesn't take agency off the road, off the table, or commandment keeping, but I think it gives us insight into. I have him. He's our heavenly parent's son first. Um, he is not lost. And the peace that's given to your mother, Jody, I think your, parent, your whole family, I think, has done a really terrific job. If your family's listening, Jody, if you're listening, I know your dad's gone now, but I think you've done a wonderful job in a very complex situation. Um, Sister Paul, that swing of yours. <laughs> Um, And these conversations you're having with, you know, I think you just did a great job. And I have to think part of the reason your son Boyd is in a good spot now is because of those conversations and your love and your understanding of the atonement. And here you've got this son, Brian, that's active in the church, raising a family. um, And the love and compassion he has and these experiences he's had with Boyd is just a wonderful insight, the atonement. I think this is a beautiful family love story. And yeah, every family has regrets. And I'm sure everybody would go back and do things differently. But that's why your podcast is helpful is we, when we know better, we do better. And that's the reason I stepped in this space is sort of rebuke the spirit of the things I said in the past and did in the past and want to do better and recognize that, you know, really good people like Boyd come along. I think listeners sometimes when I hear some of Boyd's behavior in his 20s, and I'm not a therapist or, or his bishop, but I just think I think of the iceberg principle. What we see above the iceberg is the bad behavior. And you saw a bunch of that. Uh-huh. And what's below the iceberg is often what's going on, and people numb themselves, they escape from that. Um, but it, it's possible the bottom of the iceberg is just, you know, his sexual orientation and doing everything he can to be straight, to serve that mission, to be just the great kid and recognizing at some point. And maybe dating was part of that, that this is who I am, and this is not going away, and I'm angry at God. And so you lash out. I think God can handle when he's angry when we're angry at him, just like your I, mom was. No, is. no, he's, he
1: he deals with better with honesty than covering up our I feelings. I
0: think it's sort of what we do long term with the anger if it festers in us. I think he can handle it. And your mom obviously has gone over that. But you know, I read a for those of you that are LGBTQ, David Archuleta. Who I think went to Murray High School too. Actually,
1: he, he lived in Tony Anderson's house. <laughs> um, so I, so he, not quite a football throwaway, but he's about a football throwaway from my house. He doesn't know me, but I remember him running around while I was fixing up my mom's yard. <laughs> he um, lived in Tony Anderson's house. He has a pool. I have actually swimmed in that swimming pool <laughs> inside the house. But yeah, I know, I, I, so this I know is... of David Archuleta.
0: I mean, this is a full generator. I don't don't know the time frame. David's 30. Your brother would be 59. So this is a Uh 30-year gap from Murray High School graduates. Um, But David, in one of his things, said, I don't see you, meaning God, Uh the same way you see you. And I think the assumption for LGBTQ people is this part about them is a shameful, bad thing.
1: No, I think it's a divine need. In fact, you know what, Richard?
0: And so I think that's part of the tension your brother felt.
1: But Richard, I think we're missing a piece because Please. I don't think we're getting something that brotherly love that I felt. That it's it's only I don't, my spirit. Not, but it was a love that you can only express to men. You cannot express it to your child or your wife. This was a whole different love channel. We're missing some love channels here, and it is. It was weird because you know how like when we were younger, and we we could you know throw the winning basketball shot or make the touchdown and you could just kind of surge masculinity in your body it was intense like that it was the most masculine powerful love channel that i have ever felt i don't think my brother changed richard i think he just changed love channels i think it's the brotherly love aspect of masculinity and we're missing something because i i literally i don't know how to get that feeling i am assuming i'm gonna have to die without feeling that feeling that love again. It is different than Heavenly Father's love. It's powerful. And I want to feel that again.
0: I love that. And I think you'd be okay with this. I think you've said this. Your brother was created as he intended to be created.
1: Oh, yeah. I, and,
0: I, I, I I know that. And the dissidence he felt was just not being able to reconcile that with the world he was in. Yeah.
1: We, we have the wrong culture. I mean, Richard, we, we, I don't know if, if anyone... I don't follow all your podcasts, but... There's too we, many.
0: I don't follow them all. <laughs>
1: But Richard, I mean, Jesus Christ, if you read our scriptures, we go and we go bosom to bosom. We fall upon each other's necks. We kiss each other. We embrace each other. We can't kiss each other in our preaching. We can't. Why can't we kiss each other? Like We're supposed to greet the city of Enoch in Moses 7. We're supposed to go bosom to bosom, fall upon each other's necks, and kiss each other. We can't do that. Why can't we do that? Because it's not masculine. So does that mean the city of Enoch is not masculine and Jesus Christ is not masculine? Because there's like 50 scriptures that we you know, greet each other with a holy kiss. We can't do that. So there are some gender issues. And I don't think the Western civilization has given us the correct understanding of gender. I love that. We are, in fact, I think the greatest compliment we can give it is a half a bubble off plum. And so we really don't need to defend that as a church or as a people because our Savior, the, the Jesus Christ, head of the church, doesn't technically qualify as masculine because he will go bosom to bosom, kiss each other, embrace each other. Fall upon each other's necks. Even in the Hebrew ancient cultures, like there's a there is a, you can Google this, but the Saudi prince um, and George Bush, they were at Camp David. They take the US press comes in, they take pictures, shaking hands, they kick out the US press, they bring in the Saudi press, and they hold hands, and it's a symbol of brotherhood. I think Christ did that. I think we would have major issues with his our Jesus Christ's behavior. If we really understood it, we are not working with the right gender understanding of gender
0: i I'm comfortable with that, and I think cultures driven a lot of that when I realize how other cultures process this. um you've done this if you're okay, talk to those that are suicidal that might be listening that are saying, "You know, I'm in a really tough spot, and um I even recognize that your brother's in a good spot now, and um." You know, he's with God and why should I stay? What would you say to somebody that is suicidal and just think this is going to be the best thing for everybody if I just leave? I can promise
1: you one thing, and I know this for sure. If my brother, and he loved my mom, heard that cry that I had to wake up to, he would still be alive. He he couldn't do that. I understand, and I have great sympathy for someone that wants to die. This world's not... It's not the cat's meow. And I understand that. There's two things that people want to die for. One is sometimes it's depression, medical, and it's, that's real. The second thing is when a blocked need happens, when needs are not being ham- met, and they fester, and, they, and they're a struggle, and they are hard, and they're usually love needs. And that is really hard. And I, I, I reach out to them, and I have compassion on them. And the thing is, what you don't understand is the pain that my family went through after that. My dad ate. It was hard for him to, he was constantly worried about my brother. We, I just want to say one thing as Latter-day Saints, we're too much in the judging business. We think we read DNC 76 and we're like somehow experts on the subject. We're not, we're not, we should get out of that business because you really don't have the understanding of, the power of this atonement. I've had spiritual experiences, and we make, I don't know, I had a, about the atonement, and it is powerful. It has an infinite ripple effect throughout the universe. And yes, there's hope. If you had a, if, if but try not to do that. My brother back when I was on a mission, he was struggling with something. He was not, that was not the same void that I, I felt in Levin that was on that bridge. There's some things that happen and we really don't know that journey. I would love to put Boyd on the podcast. That's not possible. I would love to hear his journey because that would be very powerful. But I would say, hold on. I have felt, I have felt like that too. And I have learned that if you can just hold on, just hold on and things turn and, and things change and the seasons change, just like the weather. And things open up, and you will have those needs met. God is very good to you. But sometimes we have to struggle, and that struggle is hard, but it does grow character. Unfortunately, sometimes I believe we grow character and attributes the same way we go to the gym. you know you you work your upper body. I call it faith, hope, and patience. and And when we have one of those trials, it's hard. I've had to go through a trial of humility, meekness, and long-suffering, and it's like your legs, and it is painful. It is painful to the core, because it, what it does is it finds on meekness, wherever you want to go bitter, it finds it, and you have to kind of rub it out and work it out, and it is painful. But you've got to hold on, because those attributes are earned at a price. I hope that's helpful. I,
0: I, it's helpful, and I love—I thought you'd answer that effectively, and— Listeners, 988, you can text, call, and chat that too. I love um, Brian's thought about hold on. And sometimes it's a good way to hold on to realize how this would impact people that love you. And um, it, it's anything to hold on is a good thing. you have kind of done this, but this question came to my mind. What do you think um, Boyd would say to your good mother right now?
1: Well, it would be an embrace, first thing. I know that. And it would probably be just as powerful as what I felt on that bridge. I have um, one of the... So a little bit about my mom. We, My whole... Like my grandfathers, we have spiritual connections. We were at my mom's 88th birthday, and one of the family members actually saw Boyd. I felt him, but he... One of the family members saw him, and my mom just kind of has a hard time. Goes, everyone gets to see, boy, dad has a vision. You have that, I don't get to see him.
0: Yeah. So, what does that mean? I, I, I think
1: she, she's the most inspired woman I've ever met. You know, what I mean, um, she doesn't recognize the Holy Ghost because probably she, I don't know. She just, she's the most inspired woman I have. But it's hard for her to recognize spiritual experiences, and I think other people are like that, and that's hard.
0: They're different spiritual gifts.
1: Yeah, they are different gifts, and um, but my. My brother loves her and she walks on water and I think it would be a great embrace. I do think when she does pass, I would guarantee 100 percent my brother's there, and my mom will be very happy with the character, the attributes. My mom has a thing with no empty chairs. We never took family pictures except for one time after my brother's death. My mom doesn't like it's hard for her to take pictures, but my brother will be there for her and she will feel amazing
0: love from him what do you think boyd would say right now to listeners i think he'd be very happy
1: we going back to that bridge there's something about my brother that my spirit told me i mean because my my body was punched out I, i like i got surprised but my spirit literally took over and it has a deep love for my brother and um I think he would be very pleased with what we're sharing. I think there's a lot of hope. I think he has a connection with other gay of his fellow brothers. I think this is a great need. I think it's the brotherly love aspect of true masculinity. I think we're losing something. And I think he loves them. These 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 they're not, we're the one that's wrong, Richard. They're not as broken as we think they're. Technically we can't even greet the state of
0: unique Richard. We need them. We do need them to create Zion. Talk about on this YouTube video listeners that we'll link to that your niece put together. Uh Um, And it's wonderful because it takes all the pictures of Boyd up until his mid twenties, but there's a note he wrote. Uh Um, If you've got that note, I think it's it's right here. It's, and maybe, it's, yeah, maybe you've already read it. But I it, think
1: I read it. It's, but let me let's recite it. It's worth. It's really it's worthy. It's really
0: powerful for me. Okay. So
1: this is coming from Washington D.C., um, and it says, "I will never forget you, and will always love you, and have hope in you. Someday you'll accept me, and it's true. We do accept him. He is our brother,
0: and we love him." Yeah, I love that note. And I love the word hope. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Brian?
1: No, but I will say never give up. And just love them, accept them. And if you don't understand it, just re- realize it's going to be reconciled. That need is divine. They cannot pray it away any more than you can pray away your need for water. And don't expect it. it there's something special about that need. It is as an attraction to other men it's a love to other men and when you see it play out in the spirit world i think it will be very divine in a righteous way but we don't have all the pieces right now
0: yeah i agree with that and i our understanding of the next life is pretty limited and so i'm open to i um, learning a lot more and i love your insights on that bridge Um, Listeners, this has been a moving podcast. I'm grateful for Brian. I'm grateful I felt impressed to reach out to him. I'm grateful for his insights. And I think our joint prayer is that if you've lost somebody to suicide, there's part of this podcast that I think teaches the doctrine of our church and the doctrine of Christ that gives you hope, gives you peace. (laughs) He is not lost, to use the words of your mother, I have him. If you're in the middle of being suicide, whether you're straight or gay, that this podcast will give you hope to hold on. Um, to move forward, to stay here, um, and if you're if you're gay, that you'll be at peace being gay. I've always felt like one of the things that my LGBTQ friends have taught me that are the best part emotionally is they go to Heavenly Father and they say, "How do you feel about me?" And often, because society and our culture has told them, because of you that you did a good job of talking about that growing up in high school about the hallway talk, is that they assume this is a bad thing, and sometimes they get to the feeling that this is a this is who they're meant to be and um i am and doesn't change our doctrine but it puts everybody on the same moral footing and it helps them believe that they can be loved by god and that helps them love themselves and make better decisions going forward so brian paul thank you for being on the podcast this is richard osler and brian paul signing off on another episode of listen learn and love